Hello everyone, welcome to the newest episode of Quiz AI podcast series. This is the last episode of this year, 2020, and it's a special one because we have the director of Quiz AI with us. Hello everyone, today we have Deniz Hoca with us, the director of Quiz AI. Welcome Deniz Hoca. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. So we have a lot of questions for Deniz Hoca, ranging from different topics of deep learning to his collaborations to Quiz AI, hiring students, a lot of things. I don't know how much of it we are going to be able to cover, but I'm going to try my best. We also have some questions from students. Excellent. Which is one of the most interesting parts in our previous podcasts, actually. I want to start by talking about Knet. Uh, one of your creations. Can you tell us about Knet and maybe also mention why Julia? All right. So um, a few years ago, uh, it was 2014 or something, I, I started hearing about this thing called deep learning. And uh, I realized I have to actually uh, learn about it. And the, the way I best learn about something uh, is by building, uh, building it. So I, I decided to write uh, something from scratch. Uh, I was looking at various um, languages at the time. Uh, I used to write my uh, code using Perl, and then you know when I run off run out of uh, time or memory, I used to convert everything to C, etc. So that used to be my old working environment. Uh, and then I, I heard about this new language coming out of MIT called Julia. And uh, they claimed it was uh, as easy to use as high-level languages like Perl and Python and as fast as C and C++. So I, I tested it, and it really was. And uh, they were just a fledgling group. I think when I first started uh, the first Julia version I worked on was version 0.2. I was probably one of the first few hundred people in the world to try this. Uh, I realized there were some missing things, but I liked the foundation of the language. So I decided to add uh, some implementations and necessary libraries uh, for deep learning. And that's how Knet uh, came to be. So it, it was the first, one of the first deep learning um, uh, frameworks uh, written in Julia. And uh, it still is one of the most popular ones with uh, more than a thousand stars in GitHub. Um, so initially, I thought um, this would accelerate my research because back then, uh, the available deep learning frameworks were really bad. Uh, you had to you know, program your own thing using C++ or uh, you have to you know, learn about the GPU architectures and stuff. Um, but I, the world uh, caught up. So right now, there is many uh, good frameworks for people to use, uh, like PyTorch and TensorFlow. Um, but I still like working on Knet because I like building things from scratch on my own. Yeah, about this, I could have actually recommended a quote from Richard Feynman, which I really like. What I cannot create, I do not understand. I so my next, <laughs> my next question is, by just using PyTorch or TensorFlow, using someone else's implementation, basically, and not implementing things from scratch, what do you think we are missing? The rest of the world, I, I mean, including myself. <laughs> Um, I think a couple of things. Uh, one, if you really want to uh, innovate at the architecture or operator level, uh, sometimes uh, you might find that what you want to do is very difficult or very inefficient to do uh, with the framework you're using. 
but if you actually have ownership of the framework all the way from the library level to the user API level, then you know exactly where to fiddle with it and add necessary functionality. So it, it brings a sort of flexibility that, um, and control uh, at a level you can't have with uh, somebody else's code. Another thing is to really understand uh, the basic mechanics of backpropagation and what makes uh, these algorithms tick, uh, you know, the different learning um, parameters and algorithms of deep learning, et cetera. It really helps build intuition uh, if you, uh, you know, build things from scratch and, uh, you know, see all the possible failures. I think, uh, in a sense, PyTorch and TensorFlow make things too easy for people, which is good for building uh, high-level applications uh, from large components. Uh, it makes it easier uh, to build these things, but it also makes it harder to uh, get into those boxes and figure out what actually makes them tick. I think to uh, get a deeper understanding even if you actually, in practice, use uh, a framework like PyTorch or TensorFlow or even KNet, uh, you should, you know, spare some time writing your own code from scratch to see, you know, how things mm -hmm. actually come together. Exactly. The next question is about the general deep learning. I think I, I'm not gonna uh, say it in a negative way, but in a positive way. You've seen the field changing more than once, like you've been there through multiple changes in the field. And how do you feel right now about the, uh, the, the domination of deep learning, like DL dominating everything in the field at the moment? How, do, how does it make you feel? Okay, so uh, the first thing it makes me feel is that we've seen this before. So um, <laughs> specifically when I first arrived at the AI lab in you know, 1980s, people used to talk about the first um, sort of deep learning revolution with, uh, you know, these neural network-like uh, machines in the 60s. And uh, for a while, people lost interest in them. And while I was doing my uh, PhD, the second revolution arrived and people really got excited about neural networks again uh, in the 90s. Um, and right now we're basically going through the third phase uh, so, you know, these things come, uh, come and go uh, as time goes on. Uh, I was actually preparing a talk, uh, actually the seminar that I'm going to give tonight, uh, and looking at the history, and I found uh, a regularity that we can use. So for, you know, every 30 years or so, the uh, interest in neural networks rise, and it lasts about 10 years, and then some mathematician writes a book, and then the interest wanes. So according to my numerology prediction, uh, our current space should last until 2022. And then some mathematician is right, going to write a book and then we're all going to switch to something else. So soon. But, <laughs> <laughs> I think, okay, so joking aside, what I really think is that uh, different from previous incarnations, this time deep learning is here to stay uh, because it has actually penetrated um, every field of artificial intelligence and it has um, proven useful in commercial applications, which is something that we can't say for all the previous AI technologies. So now that this is an integral part of our lives and people are actually paying to use these technologies, I think they're here to stay. So it's going to be part of our standard, you know, programming software toolkit. Uh, 
to use these in uh, applications going forward. And it is working for a lot of applications at the moment. It's giving really good results. My next question is about this actually, popularity of machine learning applications. Like there must be a lot of companies, individuals, collaborations coming to you with new project ideas from time to time, right? To solve a specific problem. And when you get an offer like that, how do you know that it's the right fit? How do you know who to work with? Um, <clears throat> so that's, a, yeah, that's a complicated question. Uh, so we, we do like industrial collaborations and we, want, we would like to uh, you know, expand them further, both personally uh, and as a, as a lab. Um, so there are a few things. There are certain companies that have a clear vision of how research fits into their um, work. They have a clear research strategy. Um, and there are certain companies that basically feel that something is missing, uh, but they don't quite know uh, exactly how to formulate the problem or what kind of um, uh, research would be best suited to them. Uh, and there are some companies in Turkey because the government is giving a lot of subsidies uh, as Tubitak grants or what have you. And there are some companies who are just interested in appearing like uh, doing research uh, in order to get those grants. So I think the obviously the most productive collaborations are with companies who have a clear vision of research and how it will fit uh, their um, ongoing um, business. I find that small companies, startups are usually more uh, successful in that regard because their life actually depends on uh, the, this type of research succeeding. Um, in large companies, uh, especially in Turkey, unfortunately, there is not an established culture of research. There is not an established system, uh, a strategy of collaborating with researchers and universities. Uh, and institutional memory is weak. So I find myself answering the same questions for the same big company every few years because the people change, the uh, administration changes, or you know the turnover. Um, so I, I find those types of collaborations to be uh, less um, effective. I think going forward, though, we need to come up with some new models of collaboration. Uh, right because now, I'm, I'm yeah. sort of advocating uh, instead of individual uh, company uh, academician partnerships, uh, I'm advocating more sort of institutional strategic relations. So you know, some large company pairs up with our lab. And we basically uh, act uh, as part of their research effort as a lab. And there's some full-time people uh, whose job it is to follow through uh, with the implementations for such uh, industrial uh, applications. Uh, I think that is the direction we need to go. Uh, and uh, one of my goals as the uh, director of the AI lab is to convince the Turkish firms that this is the right solution to our uh, problems yeah yeah on a personal level are you worried that you sometimes like spread yourself too thin and folks try to focus on many things at the same time and sometimes you actually cannot focus on the problems that you want to work on does this happen like i worry about it all the time that's why i'm asking this question um i worry about it all the time as well uh i think um as academicians are training um basically instills in us the ability to concentrate on the same problem for very, very long periods of time, right? So that's, if I look at my academic training, 
you know, in, in high school or secondary school, etc., we did tests and, you know, difficult questions back in the time, you know, maybe took half an hour and that was like a really hard question, right? So, uh, and then I, I went to this uh, Olympiad camp and they gave us an hour and a half to work on each problem, which was like unbelievable to me. And then, you know, undergrad years, you know, you're doing these projects and homeworks that take days. And then you go to graduate school, you learn to concentrate on the same problem for weeks and months. And basically throughout all that training, uh, we're basically, we're trained as very good uh, concentrators on problems a very long time. And I look back at my academic output and every successful uh, project that I've ever um, output always relies on me concentrating on a problem uh, uninterrupted for a couple of weeks. And then you become an academician. And unfortunately, there is uh, the system is set up such that you're constantly interrupted by either classes or office hours or meetings or you know, other responsibilities. Getting back to emails is my least favorite one. Um, and because of that, I can rarely concentrate uh, a few days uh, on the same problem, which I think uh, reduces our productivity a lot. Um, I find that sabbaticals are a great way to get away from this um, and, and concentrate again. Um, so yes, that's a constant problem I struggle with as well. Um, especially now I'm supposedly, I mean, just this morning I woke up with stress because I'm, I'm uh, running simultaneously these you know, four or five research projects at once. And I feel like you know, I'm not contributing to any of them sufficiently. And uh, I woke up with great imposter syndrome and I, I decided I'm not a, you know, <laughs> I'm not a good leader. I should actually uh, stop answering emails and concentrate on contributing to research more. So that's oh, definitely wow. a constant stress of mine. I, it's actually, I think for me, at least, I think for everyone listening, it's good to hear that even very successful people like yourself have these kind of worries from time to time. Actually, this is one of my questions. Like, there are two sides to the research, right? There's like this fun part, which we really enjoy, especially when you start working on a new idea, you start like reading a lot of new papers and it's really fun. And I think it's basically one of the reasons why at least on a personal level, I'm doing research, but there's also some times that research is not so much fun, like these days that we are having today. And how do you deal with this? Like, what do you do to deal with tedious, tiring side of the research? I think I, I just think about the alternative, right? So what is the alternative? I actually lived through the alternative. After I finished my PhD and postdoc, I, I went to the dark side. I, I, I created a startup company. Um, I worked on you know, you know, commercializing an AI product and selling it to large companies, et cetera, et cetera. So I remember those days very well. But and it was a success story in your case. You sold it to Oracle, no? <laughs> that, <laughs> That's how I remember. It was a commercial success, but in terms of being able to spend my time on the problems I want, uh, it was a big failure. I mean, my initial naive goal was that if I actually have a startup company and I make money, then I can, you know, contribute more uh, to research and, you know, find more time, hire more good people. We can all come together, think about new innovative ways. But a startup company, unfortunately, by definition, is always underfunded and understaffed and everybody has to do five jobs at once. And it rarely has enough bandwidth uh, for new ideas to flourish. And that's part of the reason I went back to academia uh, because you know, the two, three years I spent on this company, I realized I'm not contributing anything research-wise. I'm you know, 
either handling customer problems or you know advert you know trying to explain the technology to new customers and you know other types of things that I, I uh, don't think I enjoyed as much as doing the research. Uh, so that, that was the reason I came to academia. Now, academia also has its challenges, as we talked about, but it's nowhere near um, a commercial uh, company or a startup company. Um, I, think that, yeah. uh, I think, by the way, the people who have it the best are people who work for rich research labs. Uh, so like Google and Facebook, because they don't have to worry about funding, they don't have to worry about grants, they don't have to worry about students or classes, they can just sit down and do research all day long. Uh, but uh, if you're not in one of those, then a university is the second best thing. We are supposed to do our advertisement, not theirs, maybe. <laughs> 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 we come back to that, maybe. Okay, but like... First of all, first of all uh, let me, let me uh, make a point there. I'm talking about being a professor. As a professor uh, in an academic institution, these are the things that we struggle with. If I was a PhD or postdoc in our current AI lab, I would be in heaven. You know, I have everything I want all the time in the world to concentrate on research. So that, that is my goal actually, to prepare an environment for, for young people uh, who like research uh, to, you know, not worry about anything else, but concentrate on their research. That's a very good goal. I think it's it's very, it's amazing for our students, and we will talk more about it. Just before that, like, what is so fun about research? What are you looking forward to on a regular day where you don't have to answer emails or, you know, do a lot of meetings? I think is it coding. Is it just coding or? Coding is definitely meditative. <laughs> I, I like you know just spending hours and hours you know fighting with my code in front of the computer. I think that's the introvert side of me that, you know, finds that uh, attractive. And um, any day that I don't actually do that, I, I feel uh, like I haven't done real work. So some days I, I have to spend, you know, talking to people all day. And at the end of those days, I'm like, what have I accomplished? I haven't written a single, you know, line of code. I haven't learned any new math. It's, you know, um, seems to me like a waste of time. But the important thing, I think the attractive thing about research is that, uh, as you said, you enter a new field, you start learning things that you didn't know before. And if you persevere enough, eventually you get to a point where you know everything about a narrow subject that everybody else in the world knows. And then at that point, you're at the frontier. And after that, anything actually you learn is something new that nobody knows uh, before. And actually discovering anything like that is the, I don't know, I can't describe that, uh, that feeling. You know, when you, when you know that you're the first person to observe something new or understand something new uh, about uh, a question that um, uh, nobody else has thought before is, is uh, I think it's own reward. It's like being an explorer in 1800s and finding new continents, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, just, but just in a computer, not uh, in a, on a ship or something. Without leaving your couch. <laughs> exactly. Okay, um, so your main focus in research is language. Can we say that? Is that um, appropriate or? Yes, if there is a main focus, <laughs> I, I, I guess it is. Uh, yeah. Machine learning and language, I would say, yes. Um, related to that, we have a couple of questions from students, and I really like them. So one question is, what do you think about the relation between creativity and language? 
Like, can we imagine an artist or a composer that is not able to use language? And if there's a strong relation between the language and creativity, can we get our systems, AI systems, to be more creative if we can teach them language? Better, um, or we are already teaching them language, I guess, but if we can do it like really well. Well, okay, so I think there is an intimate connection between language and creativity in the following sense. Uh, I think language, um, more than a medium for communication, uh, it is a representation for thinking. So uh, the fact that we're able to parse the world into objects and actions and freely recombine these objects and actions in our heads is what underlies our linguistic ability. And the actual language that comes out of your mouth is just a side effect of that particular ability. So if, uh, if you take language to mean or linguistic information to mean this ability to recombine um, uh, pieces that you parsed out of the world, then I think that's essential for creativity, right? So anything that you create new is not, you know, uh, fundamentally new in the sense that if you're if I'm doing a painting I'm not inventing new colors I'm just combining them in new ways or if I'm writing a novel uh, you know none of the events that take place are necessarily original after all I'm using the same words as all the other books but I'm combining them in new ways and this idea of recombining things is what underlies language as well um, how how good we are in terms of um, uh, computers and AI in, in achieving this, I think so far not very good. So compositionality, uh, being able to find reusable concepts and generating new combinations of these that make sense. Uh, we, we see maybe little signs of that ability, but there is no uh, convincing demonstration that that is you know, taking place at the human scale yet. You also work at the intersection of language and vision, for example, you try to combine these modalities together. And the next question is related to that. Do we need more than language in order to understand the world in your opinion? And um, why? So I, I would say absolutely yes. The first, um, I would say the first couple decades that I actually spent uh, working on language, I worked on text-based systems. So these were systems where you read a piece of text, you either learn how to answer questions about it, or you, understand, you, know, you learn how to evaluate it as a positive sentiment or negative sentiment, for example, or you take this text and translate it into another language. You take this test and text and uh, tag the words with the dictionary senses they have. All these problems are all text-based problems. And uh, after you work on these text-based problems for a while, you realize that every problem that you try to solve uh, using statistical methods or deep learning methods, you can come to a reasonably good level of accuracy. You know, around 80% is basically all the state-of-the-art systems solve all the problems around 80% in language. Um, and then, you know, you get stuck there. So after you know, two decades of watching people and myself get stuck there, I realized that in order to push this frontier further, we need to focus on what this language actually means. So studying language in isolation is actually hurting us by not providing enough context 
to solve some of the problems uh, that we see with language. If there is a model of the world or model of the domain that you're talking about that is independent of language, and you can actually perform inferences in that domain or simulations in that domain as part of understanding language, that brings a new dimension uh, that does not exist solely in the words. And I think we desperately need that dimension in order to build systems that really understand language. But is it really independent of the language, these world models you're talking about? Um, I mean, yeah, you can have the same scene visually and described as a text. There are data sets like that, right? Matching so that, text and visual description. Sure. Um, but what I mean is, is the following. So let's say you have a you know, virtual environment and you have a physical simulator in this environment. And you're reading this story that talks about a couple of objects bouncing around and traveling in this environment. Uh, and then, you know, imagine one system that just looks at these words and creates uh, logical formulas out of these words. And, you know, maybe it has some uh, rules, it has some axioms that it has learned or regularities, patterns that it has learned, and it's trying to generate what's going on and compare that with another system which actually visualizes what's going on. It actually imagines this physical space with the objects in it and it follows the trajectory of all the objects based on the descriptions that you're giving uh, in the text. And then imagine that system being able to answer questions uh, about that particular domain. I think you would probably agree that the second system is going to have a much easier time making some deductions that are really difficult to do by looking at words alone. Uh, Simply so more I, information, basically. That's right. So that, uh, that world model actually uh, has more information in, it in, the, in its own dynamics that it brings to the picture that may not um, exist in, in, the, in this piece of text and in general may not exist in any piece of text because humans actually have these types of models uh, you know, almost from birth as part of our common sense. You know, we have a common sense about physical objects. We have common sense about social interactions. We have common sense about emotions and theory of mind. Nobody, um, you know, teaches all these things explicitly. We basically uh, are, are um, built to acquire these abilities uh, in a very short period of time. And because these are all natural abilities all humans share. An author never mentions them. Okay, so if there is something that everybody knows, like you know, eggplants don't go to school or something, you can't find this information in any piece of text, because obviously, you know, this is a very obvious piece of information, and no author is going to write this down. So if you have a system that learns everything about the world from reading text, it's going to miss all these very obvious. Uh, facts and uh, regularities because they've never been uh, put into text. It's funny you mentioned common sense because before earlier today I was watching the second AI debate and you know Gary Marcus is one of the loudest uh, frontiers are support, supportive of this idea of having common sense or causality in deep learning systems or besides deep learning systems. He always talks about this converging approach. How do you feel about it? Like, Are we good at incorporating this common sense into the learning models at the moment? I guess we all know the answer. The answer is no. And 
how do you think we are going to achieve that? Is it going to be part of the deep learning? Is it going to be a hybrid approach or is it going to be an independent uh, development in parallel um, to deep learning? Okay, so first of all, yes, I agree that we don't uh, have it yet. Do we know how to get it? Uh, not yet. People have tried various methods. Uh, you know, when I was young, there was the psych project where, you know, they hired 30 people to type in all the common sense knowledge in terms of logical rules into a computer, you know, expecting that to achieve AI. Uh, but, you know, they worked on it for many decades and it didn't work out. Um, there is, um, there has been projects where, you know, you, you leave a robot out and observes the world and interacts with people and uh, gains its information that way. I, I don't think that, you know, there has been um, many successes doing that, even though I like that approach. Um, we have to find a way to uh, make the computers basically acquire this knowledge that all of us share. Um, and I don't think we have found the right way. Uh, so I agree with Gary Marcus's criticism. I don't agree with his style because that's all he does. Uh, I don't think he actually offers any, uh, you know, specific solutions. Uh, so it's, it's very easy to say, you know, AI doesn't do this, AI doesn't do that. There's always been people who sell books and become famous. You know, Hubert Dreyfus was one of the famous ones back in the day. Some philosophers I can name that I don't want to. So there are people who make their careers based on what the current crop of AI researchers cannot yet do. I don't find that a very um, uh, productive approach. If you have a good idea, implement it and show it to us. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, so, but it's clear that the solution will not come from only computer science, right? It's probably going to be something of a product, like working together with neuroscientists, maybe even like in your case, you're working with linguists, sociologists, even physicists, one of your best friends is a physicist. And like, why, first of all, and how does it happen? Like, how do you start these collaborations? You have so many of them. So, I mean, AI is an interesting subject, right? So we're trying to solve intelligence, uh, or it's one of the efforts to solve intelligence, I would say. Uh, and we, we share this passion with many other fields. Uh, I think the quest to solve intelligence started probably with philosophy. So we definitely have intimate collection, connections with philosophy of mind. Um, and then it was taken over by psychology. And psychologists generated all these different models that try to explain uh, how we're intelligent. And most recently, neuroscience uh, entered the picture. And they're basically looking at the smallest building blocks of intelligence and trying to uh, figure out how they contribute to the whole. And what AI brings uh, to the table is an approach where uh, you can actually build models of your theories. Right? So in psychology, it's enough to uh, make some observations about how some people behave and you know, write down a conceptual framework uh, for that uh, in a paper. In AI, that's not enough. You also have to implement that framework, which means you really have to understand it. As we talked in the beginning, you, know, you, you really understand something fully if you can build it. Uh, and then uh, you test the system that you build. And I think knowledge we arrive uh, via that approach uh, is a lot more reliable. You see the bugs in your idea immediately because the system won't work. And uh, once you actually uh, figure out how to make it work, that gives you intuitions about what, the, what any intelligent or biological uh, system should also share uh, solving this problem.
So in that sense, AI is intimately connected to all these fields. Uh, and I encourage all students interested in AI to look beyond computer science and uh, you know, take classes or um, uh, you know, watch videos, I guess these days is what uh, kids do about uh, cognitive neuroscience, psychology, linguistics, philosophy, um, anything connected to intelligence to broaden your horizons. Uh, because obviously the new, the, the next big thing in AI is not going to come from, uh, probably I should say, uh, from fiddling with existing deep learning models. It's going to come from somebody with some intuition uh, from another field and uh, making use of that intuition to innovate uh, in the AI space. So it's important to both um, uh, making you a productive researcher and, and also just from an intellectual point of view. I mean, if you're not excited about solving intelligence, then you know, why are you in this field? And if you are excited about solving intelligence, then you should basically learn about all the other schools of thought that tried to do it before us. So um, I think it's a natural extension to have. So ideally, um, maybe this is something that we should talk about for the future, but AI students that come to us uh, shouldn't just be required to take, you know, right now they're just required to take some computer engineering classes and be able to program and, you know, these days just, you know, use PyTorch or whatever. Ideally, we should actually have um, a curriculum for them that actually includes philosophy and psychology and linguistics and cognitive science and uh, cognitive neuroscience so that they, they basically see the part of the big picture uh, they're working on. So it is clear that we want the same thing. We want to, basically they have the problems and we have the kind of the solution. We can provide models which can create some results for them. But how do we find a common ground? Like, are you having any difficulties while working with scientists from different backgrounds? How do you establish a common language so that you can communicate better? I'm having difficulties with this one as well. I, I, I have a lot of personal questions I see in this system. <laughs> No, that's a, that's a very good question. Every field has its own jargon. Um, uh, I, uh, maybe the, mo the worst offender is machine learning itself, right? So uh, it has been invented many, many times, first by mathematicians, you know, and it was called statistics, and then by signal processing people, and then it was called pattern recognition, and then, you know, by neural network people, which have their own jargon, and then reinforcement learning people had their own jargon, industrial engineers, found some use some of the same math with their own jargon. So it's horrible. It's horrible that we do this and we basically splinter the fields this way, even though they're all talking about um, similar things. Um, so I think the, the, the trick to a good successful collaboration is the willingness on both parties to try to learn uh, how to speak and understand the other's language. Uh, so, uh, in our successful uh, collaborations, like with Tidbe Hoca, for example, who is a you know uh, linguist uh, psychology professor, you know she, um, I'm, uh, I think, would say she learned a lot about you know our deep learning uh, jargon, and we in turn uh, now know about the different types of verbs and you know how kids uh, learn them and understand them, etc. So you have to have a willingness to speak each other's language to make progress together. And I think this is easiest uh, among people who share uh, this uh, 
um, interest in uh, understanding intelligence. So if your end goal is the same, then you know these different uh, jargons are just a small obstacle along the way that uh, you can uh, easily pass. Yeah, yeah, good answer. Both sides need to make the effort. That's right. So okay. I, I want to add one more thing. Uh, uh, there is a type of collaboration that I don't like, uh, and that is basically, uh, and that's uh, people from other fields, or maybe we do that too sometimes, uh, <laughs> that basically see AI as a service industry, right? So they have uh, an application, uh, they have a piece of research, and they just say, oh, you know, if I add some, if I sprinkle some AI into this, then I'll be better than my colleagues and I'll publish more papers. So they want you to come in and you know um, act you know act like their AI engineer. Um, I don't enjoy those collaborations as much. Yeah, yeah. I guess research scientists in AI don't want to be highly specialized technicians for someone, right? That's like the point. Yeah. That's right. Okay. In the remaining time, I want to talk about quiz AI. Yeah. Um, so the first question, I guess. What is the most exciting thing about Quiz AI? I mean, I share your excitement. This is for everyone, not just for me. So for the audience, like, what is the dream? What do you hope to achieve with Quiz AI? Okay, Big so, question. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, number one, this is the biggest example of a industry university collaboration in Turkey, right? Not in the world, but in Turkey, it's definitely the, uh, the, the biggest and best example there is. So it's a great opportunity for us to show, to demonstrate that this can actually work and it can actually create value. Um, the, the thing that excite, excites me the most is I, I've been observing, um, obviously, you know, graduate students and researchers in Turkey uh, deal with problems uh, that slow down their work that are all very solvable. And the only reason these problems aren't solved is that the, you know, some agencies or some administrators not having uh, the right uh, uh, strategy or vision. Um, I mean, I, I would include in this small problems like, you know, not being able to send your students to conferences, for example, not being able to give them enough GPU power to um, compete with uh, their, you know, um, their uh, uh, colleagues in you know Stanford or MIT. Okay, so these are all very solvable problems, and I think uh, the opportunity that Ishpankasi gave us uh, was a uh, a way to to solve these uh, problems and remove the obstacles uh, in front of young researchers so they can really uh, compete at the world level. And once you remove these obstacles, I I am absolutely confident that our team, our students are in no way uh, inferior to any other uh, research lab working on this uh, in the world. I mean, you came from uh, England, I came from the US, we've worked in the best labs around the world. And we know, you know how they work, um, what their abilities and commitments are. And I think we can, um, uh, we can definitely, uh, increase our output to the same level or exceed uh, them uh, if we didn't have to worry about 
these very small, finite, solvable, but very irritating problems. So that's what I'm, I'm most excited about. <laughs> Basically, you want to function as an enabler for the students and for that's researchers. Right. Okay. That's right. Nice. So I want them to come here and not worry about anything but whatever they're passionate about. Good research, yeah. And how do you imagine a good environment for research? Like what kind of lab culture are you trying to cultivate in that perspective towards uh, this, these goals? I think the most important thing, uh, I, I, I look at successful examples of this, right? So Bell Labs in the, you know, I don't know, 70s and 80s and Google, you know, in the 90s and 2000s. So maybe DeepMind, right now. No. So in all of these successful examples, uh, the common thread is basically you bring together um, a, a concentration of smart people passionate about the same subject. And you remove, um, you know, silly obstacles that slow them down. And you let them do their thing. I think that is the great big secret of success in research. Now, not everybody shares my view. Uh, especially in Europe, there is this, um, um, I don't know, cultural bug that overly tries to control everything and plan everything. The other thing is this um, great interest in planning that doesn't necessarily exist to, the, exist to the same extent in the US, but does exist in Europe. Uh, you can't plan everything about research. So I, I especially feel uh, this when I'm writing research proposals. So right, when you're applying for some funding, they say, okay, what are you going to do for the next three years? Write it down step by step. Okay, each month, what are you going to do? And then, you know, if that doesn't work, what's your B plan? I think, I mean, we all fill these things up, but it always leaves me feeling a bit dirty because, you know, as a scientist, I've been trained to be uh, honest and truthful in everything I write down. And whenever I fill one of those proposals, uh, I don't feel that way. Because honestly, how am I going to know what I'm going to work on next month without knowing what the results of my experiments will be this month, right? Yet alone three years. So mm -hmm. I think that is the, you know, that type of planning is the wrong approach for uh, creative research. It doesn't leave enough space for serendipity uh, mm -hmm. and creativity. Um, of course, you know, we have to answer to something. We can't just let people just play around, I guess. Although, you know, um, we could, <laughs> we could, I mean, <laughs> the best innovations have come from uh, teams that were able to play around. Uh, yeah. uh, but I think that should be judged based, based on the long-term output. Okay, so mm -hmm. if you give somebody a chance, um, and, you know, if, uh, if the long-term output doesn't come, then eventually you give up. But it's like an investment. You, you invest in people and you let them um, carry on uh, and, then, and then see, and then you reward success. I think that's the right policy for uh, creative research. Open-ended research or long-term goals requires that kind of dedication, I guess, and that's what we are or you are hoping to provide researchers with. Absolutely. Yeah. And the next question: How do you find the right people? How do you attract skilled people here? Like, 
let's say I'm graduating this year, finishing my PhD, why should I apply Quiz AI as a postdoc? Or I'm a junior level, um, like I'm looking for faculty positions, why should I apply Koch University or Quiz AI? Why not Google Brain or DeepMind or anywhere else? Okay, so um, I'm going to answer the Turkey versus, you know, outside of Turkey <laughs> question uh, later, but first to answer the, uh, the main question of what attracts, you know, smart and talented people together. Why do you think the smartest people, uh, you know, went to work for Bell Labs in the 80s and Google in the 90s, and maybe, you know, they're interested in working in DeepMind now? What, what attracts them? Why, why do the smartest people want to go there? Probably they share a common goal. They get excited by the projects that they're focusing on and they're, they feel enabled, like you said. They, they're like, they don't have to worry about compute. They don't have to worry about money and these kind of things, I guess. I, I don't know, that's I, my answer, yeah. I agree. However, um, there, so one, to play the devil's advocate, uh, there is also companies and people with money that try to imitate this by pouring a lot of money into their research labs, for example but they don't always succeed in attracting the same type of talent, even if they pay them more. Why do you think that happens? I don't know, I guess you will tell me. <laughs> it sounds like you have the answer. <laughs> no, I don't have the answer, but I think, I think it's, the, it's the concentration of good people. Once you um, provide a good environment and you have a uh, community of good people you attract a community of good people, those good people attract more good people, okay? Mm -hmm. Good people basically want to work first and foremost with other good people. So you want to be in the environment where all the other talented people are because you want to learn from them. You want to collaborate with them. So that is, I think, the number one attraction. So one of the things I learned that was very surprising to me uh, at MIT is that MIT doesn't pay its professors top money. There is a lot of other universities that pay more money to professors, but the most talented ones still want to come work at MIT. Why? Same for Oxford, by the way. Yeah. So basically, they want to be next to other smart people. Okay. So that gives us a clue. So what do we need to do in Quiz AI Lab? We need to basically um, first attract the core uh, of uh, good, talented people. And then once that's attracted and that's established, they're going to attract all the other talents without us doing anything special, right? So that, that's, um, I think that's the secret there. So how do you light the initial fire? Uh, that's a you know, difficult one. Um, what we did is basically we offered these great scholarships. Uh, we we you know, offered um, programs and policies that will uh, attract people who really want to do research um, who are passionate about it, and we were pretty successful. So in our first year, uh, we had five times more applications than we usually uh, get around the same time. Our graduate school interviews lasted a week instead of one day. Uh, and uh, you know, we did attract uh, a, a number of very talented students, which I'm very happy about. Um, and I think the rest will follow from that. Um, now, Turkey versus uh, research labs abroad is something that everybody has to uh, decide on their own. I don't think we can convince somebody who has their eye on, you know, DeepMind or Google Brain uh, 
to stay in Turkey? And should we? No, we should not. I think we should be happy to have colleagues. Uh, uh, we have relationships with, in those centers as well. Those are our you know, eyes and ears. Uh, if we have intimate relations with the places that lead uh, this science in the world, that can only benefit us. So I'm definitely not um, against people uh, taking those opportunities as well. But there should also be an option of world-class research environments uh, right here in Istanbul for people who prefer uh, to work that way. Yeah, yeah. That's actually what we are trying to achieve by with weekly AI meetings, right? We are inviting people over or we, we are planning visits ourselves in the future when the corona is over physically, hopefully. That's our goal, like to start collaborations all over the world with good researchers. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, looking into the future, that's hopefully the last question. Um, how do you plan to keep it going? Because the funding provided by Ishbankasa is limited at the moment, right? Like, do you, do you have, do we have any concrete plans? Or in the, in, in like other, going other way around, are we going to keep hiring people? Like what is the ideal size for a research lab like ours? Um, so for continuity, I think, uh, um, again, looking at the other models from the world, I think industrial relations is, um, essential. So we have to establish our lab with positive examples and positive projects as a place where um, companies can come to and solve real problems and create real value. Uh, and once we establish that, then I think our funding is going to be more secure. In the meantime, uh, I don't think Ishpankas ever starts uh, something that they don't intend to continue. So I have full confidence that they will actually um, keep supporting us uh, going forward if we can demonstrate to them that what we're doing is successful as well. Uh, in terms of the right size, uh, that's an interesting question. So I think the right size is somewhere between not having enough people uh, so that you know there is at least several people who understand what you're doing and you can bounce ideas off and you can collaborate with. So that's, uh, that's the lower end. So everybody that is working uh, should have other people that understand what they're doing so that they can push each other. Uh, whereas on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you have these huge labs where you know people don't know each other anymore and there is no sense of community because um, there is not enough bandwidth uh, in everybody's time to uh, get to know everybody. So that's the range where you know um, companies like DeepMind or MIT AI Lab are where there's 200, 300 uh, plus people that becomes a very different organization. I think the ideal size is somewhere in between those. I think right now we're probably at the small end of that spectrum. I think it would be beneficial. Uh, it would be productive for us to grow right now mm -hmm. in terms of research output. That's why we hired almost 50 people in our first year, right? That's true, that's true. But I also meant in terms of faculty, right? Oh, so yeah. yeah. We have about 15 full-time faculty that are directly working on AI-related subjects. I think that number should grow as well. I agree. And um, for companies listening to us at the moment, hopefully, like there are two questions. First question, why should they invest in us? Like what would be the motivation for companies like Google, Nvidia, to provide us, for example, research credits or to invest in us. 
And the second question, how can they do that? Um, so Google and NVIDIA already have sort of their uh, policies about how to encourage research and academic work and how to um, advance collaboration. And I think uh, our lab is a good target for them uh, in, in this region of the world uh, because we do uh, world-class research and we, we can definitely turn uh, their investment into a uh, uh, good research return. Um, in terms of you know, other companies uh, that are looking to um, enhance their business uh, with more AI, uh, the reason is value, right? So um, a good university industry collaboration works if actual value is created for the company. Um, so uh, I think that's something to be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but I think um, companies should have a definite, uh, especially large companies should have a definite strategy about uh, research and what brings to their business and how to best allocate the resources they uh, they do for it in, in the sense that we should go beyond uh, these six month you know let's hire a professor to ask questions and you know develop this little gadget that you know we don't want to pay for to a foreign company uh, type thing to more long-term uh, strategic relations where um, they can think, okay, so let's invest in this lab for the next 10 years, have some common uh, staff, you know, give some scholarships to students uh, and work on several, you know, long-term projects uh, that may or may not uh, turn out to create value. But the big research value is always going to come from those long shot projects. And, uh, you know, if you don't buy the ticket, you never win the lottery. So I think in every company's uh, strategy, long-term research should be part of um, their uh, value creation strategy. Mm -hmm. Okay, one last question. Actually, I reached out to several people, your students, <laughs> your collaborators, and most of them <laughs> wanted me to ask this question. What is your daily schedule? We all know that you love waking up early, right? You like have 8.30 classes all the time. And what is the reason? Like, what is so nice about waking up early? Okay. This is the last so that, question. This is, a, this is a very big misconception. I actually <laughs> hate waking up early. And I used to never wake up early. Um, uh, you know, the first time I had to wake up early was in science high school because, you know, you had to be a boarding student and they woke you up at 6.30 and I hated my life during that period. Uh, and then you know, undergrad, graduate school, postdoc, even as I was working on my startup company, I almost never woke up before 10. That all changes when you have a kid. So when you have a child, the child determines when you wake up. And, uh, you know, I have a 14 year old daughter. So for the last 14 years, I haven't been able to sleep in my natural schedule because, you know, she has school or she needs breakfast or, you know, she, so that's, that's the reason why I'm up early. For the eight, 30 classes. The reason is um, um, I like getting done with classes early in the morning sometimes so that the rest of the day uh, is free to concentrate on research. Sometimes I feel like if I have a class in the afternoon, uh, it stresses me out and it prevents me from actually concentrating on uh, doing research in the morning. 
but uh, you know, I've, I've I've been trying various schedules to with the all with the same goal, all with basically you know creating this pocket of time where it's quiet and I can actually think. Um, I haven't found the ideal solution yet. I'll I'll let you know when I please <laughs> please do. I'm still optimizing that function as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 1 p.m. is not working, by the way. That's my current oh, schedule. Okay. No, no, it's not okay. ideal. Yeah. You're right in the middle of the day, right? You lose the whole day, exactly, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. It has been a great pleasure. I learned a lot. I think people will like it. It was like really interesting to hear your opinions about different things. Thank you very much again. Thanks, Fatma. In the new year, we are going to continue with the new episode of Quiz AI podcast series. Stay tuned. <laughs>